So we are at uh, Lord's Day 18, and we start um, looking at Christ's ascension, which is really great and interesting. It's the part of the, of the uh, Apostles' Creed that says he ascended into heaven. And as you'll notice, there are two Lord's Days with regard to the ascension. And, uh, and, it, and a lot of questions. And so we'll get into that after Easter. Next week, we don't have Sunday school. Uh, we always take the Easter Sunday off for, from Sunday school. Um, it, but so what I thought I would do is, since we already went over question 45, we would revisit question 45. And uh, it, with this uh, Sunday being Easter, the coming Sunday, um, and this being Holy Week, it uh, might be good for us to reflect again on Christ's resurrection, not just to go over the same stuff, but um, how do we know, in fact, that Christ was raised from the dead? And these are things that I like to repeat with the congregation again and again, because uh, it's really one of the most important things that we can know and be certain about. Uh, really, the whole Christian faith, the whole gospel message, hangs on whether or not Christ was raised from the dead. And so um, let's, let's give our attention to that today. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our God and our Father, we do give you all praise and honor and glory, thanking you for Christ who came into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago to lay down his life for our sakes. We thank you for his suffering, for his death. We thank you for what he accomplished for us. We thank you for his resurrection, Lord. And as we give our attention now to that and how we can be certain of the eyewitness testimony, and what reason we have to believe these things. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would give us comfort and assurance. And help us, Lord, we pray, to also tell others the good news. As that good news has spread to us and spread throughout the world, that Christ has been raised from the dead. As we remember that uh, over this week, uh, Lord, we pray that we would have opportunity to tell others of what you have done for us through Christ and how he has conquered death. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's go back to Lord's Day 17, if you have that. You want to turn in the Psalter hymnal there. Uh, you'll find it on page 24 in the back. And there's just one question. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by His resurrection, He has overcome death, so that He might share righteousness He won for us by His death. Second, by His power, This is, I think, one of the best uh, catechism questions. It's so carefully crafted. And if you remember now how uh, this looks, uh, looks like somebody took off with the, with the black. Ah, there it is. Okay. There, I was ready to blame Judas again for taking the... There we go. I forgot I hid it from Judas last time. Uh, Heidelberg Catechism, question 45. Uh, Notice it gives you three reasons why the, why, uh, of what Christ has accomplished for us in his resurrection, how it benefits us. And they essentially amount to three very important uh, doctrines that are part of our salvation. Uh, does anybody remember how we, how we look at that? By Christ's resurrection, he has accomplished what? Our justification... 
So Romans 5 says that he was, uh, Romans 4, verse 25, says that he was raised from the dead for our justification. Notice what it says there. By his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make a share in the righteousness he won for us by his death. If he wasn't raised from the dead, then we have no reason to take comfort in the cross. Then Jesus of Nazareth was just one more person who died on a Roman cross. And there were many people, there were thousands of people crucified in the first century, as well as the centuries preceding that and following that. But if he was raised from the dead, then we have every reason to believe that his life was righteous and his resurrection was God's vindication of this righteous man who is his son and that everything else that is said about his resurrection, namely in the epistles that show us how this applies to us, that uh, in fact God justifies us, pronounces us righteous in his sight for, by sake of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been imputed to us. The second thing that it benefits, the second way in which it benefits us is what? All right. Sanctification. Because look at what it says. Second, by his power, we too are already now resurrected to a new life. And so it's talking about our new life in Christ. And, and so it's dividing up our salvation into what we have already and what is not yet. Because your salvation is not complete. A lot of times when I say that, people get confused. They say, well, I thought it was complete. I thought Jesus accomplished all the work. Well, he did accomplish all the work. His work is done, but it has not yet fully been applied to you. You don't have the entire sum of salvation that Christ has already accomplished. What you do have already is this, justification, Okay, the judgment day in the future brought forward into the present. And that means that uh, God has announced you righteous in his sight. And you are as righteous in his sight as Jesus Christ is righteous because his righteousness has been imputed to you. But you also have this, sanctification, in which you are raised to newness of life. And being united with Christ, who's been raised from the dead, God is now infusing righteousness into you. That's another word that Protestants sometimes feel allergic to, and they ought not because it's in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, righteousness is imputed to us by ju in justification. It is infused to us slowly, making you righteous inwardly through the process of sanctification. And uh, that's why we use the means of grace, the word and the sacraments, to slowly uh, go through this process of sanctification. The medieval church had these things reversed, where uh, you use the sacraments to slowly gain merit for your justification. That's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, the Bible teaches that God justifies you through faith in Jesus Christ, but that you are slowly being made righteous inwardly over time, and there is this progress that happens in our sanctification because we're united to Jesus Christ. And all of that uh, depends on his resurrection. Any questions on that so far? That's really important to get. Then the third thing, what does it say here? 
Third, Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of our glorious resurrection. So what do we call that? Glorification. Glorification. There we go. So all three of these have been, have been uh, won for you by Jesus Christ. And it's so certain that you will have them that Paul puts it into the past tense in Romans 8 when he says those whom he has, uh, call, those whom he has predestined, he has also called, those whom he called, he has justified, those whom he justified, he has also glorified. But you have not yet received that. Nobody is yet glorified. There is only one glorified human being, and that's Jesus Christ. No other human being is yet glorified. And uh, there's a lot that we don't know about the intermediate state. Someone recently was asking me you know, about specific details, and the Bible doesn't give us specific details. All we know is that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord for the believer. But both body and soul are redeemed by Christ, and both of them make up who you are as a person. One is your material you, the other is your immaterial you. Uh, and the immaterial you goes to be with the Lord uh, upon death, when body and soul separate. And, but body and soul will be brought back together when Christ returns. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. And that's when glorification happens. That's when our bodies will be transformed, made like unto our Lord, as Philippians 3 and 1 Corinthians 15 say. Uh, so we have not yet entered into that, but Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of this as well. All three of these uh, equal your salvation. We, we sometimes think of this as only being our salvation. That's not true. It, your salvation doesn't stop at justification. Your salvation also includes your sanctification and glorification. And that is when it's complete here. That's when we will be with our Lord and we'll say, all of it has been applied to us. But it all depends on Christ's resurrection in history. Any questions so far? So the resurrection is huge. Now the reason why I've made this, I've tried to make Christ's resurrection uh, a centerpiece of my ministry as a pastor over the last 13 or 14 years um, is because it, it, it is, it's so important if you, for several reasons. Number one, if we look at the book of Acts and we see how the apostles preached, they always preached the resurrection of Christ. They didn't preach, Jesus is going to give you a more fulfilling life, try Jesus, he died for the opportunity, um, hey, you've tried other things, try this, you know, you might be a happier person. There is none of that in the book of Acts. The way that they preach is, we are sinners, and we are condemned. Uh, the, our only hope for salvation is Jesus of Nazareth, uh, whom God raised from the dead. And of that, we are all eyewitnesses. You can read the book of Acts, and you'll see that is the way they proclaimed the gospel, that uh, we've seen Christ raised from the dead. Now, this is so important, not just because that's the way that the apostles preached, but the doctrine of the resurrection is... Uh, one of the most important things that you can give a person who is depressed. People get depressed, and they, get, they, they go into doubts, and they go into all kinds of dark thoughts and feelings, and they start wondering, um, you know, how can I be sure? How can I be sure about this? How can I be sure about that? 
and you know because the fog has gone over their eyes, and uh, and and you got to kind of pull them out of that cloud, and it's not that easy to do. And uh, you know there's various ways to do that. A lot of people just do it through medication. Sometimes their medication is necessary. Many times it is unnecessary. Many times people are over medicated, and they can get so over medicated that they can even end up taking their life when they're over medicated. That's just a reality. And, uh, and I'm not saying that the medication is wrong. Someone will hear me saying that, and that's not what I'm saying. And it's being recorded, and so you can go back and listen to this. I'm not saying that a Christian shouldn't take medication if the doctors prescribe medication. But I am saying that a lot of times Christians are over-medicated. And, and pharmaceutical companies and doctors love to prescribe things because this is very easy today. And, but we have to also look at other. There's, there's not just one answer in uh, moments of depression. One of the, there's many things that we need to do. And one thing we need to do as a Christian is say, how can I be certain? How can I be certain that this isn't a fairy tale or a hoax? How can I be certain that any of God's promises are for me? You know, because we tell people, oh, read the Psalms, read the Psalms. Okay, but how do you know that the one who, who said to write those things is actually for you and on your side. How do you know that those psalms aren't just ancient Hebrew poems that, that mean nothing? How? How can you be sure that Genesis actually happened? How can you be sure that Jesus was telling the truth? How do you know that Jesus wasn't just a crazy man or a liar? How can you be sure that uh, the book of Revelation isn't just, you know, the record of some guy who had acid trips? Uh, how, do you, how can you be sure about anything? How do you know that, that, as a Christian, you aren't just wasting your time? It all comes down to what those guys saw. If Christ was raised from the dead, it's true. If he wasn't raised from the dead, then we're wasting our time. That's what Paul says. It's the most important thing to get straight. So this is not just an evangelistic tool. This is for you also when you go into spirals of doubt or when you're counseling a friend who says, man, I just don't know anymore. you got to go back to the brass tacks and the bare basics. And if, we, and if that isn't clear and like ready in our mind, then, um, then we're kind of failing a little bit uh, as Christians because our Christian faith is built on this. It stands on this. How can you be sure that any of God's promises are true? For me, it's because Christ was raised from the dead. Because the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Bam, done, over. That's it. Nothing else. That's it. You don't have to talk about anything else beyond that. Just that. The testimony of the eyewitnesses. That's how Luke begins his gospel. By saying, I'm compiling a documentary, a record of all the eyewitnesses have seen. And, uh, and it all comes down to that. So how can we be sure about, about the resurrection? Well, one of the things that I've tried to, to put into people's minds, because, again, our minds are so filled with stuff, and uh, it's hard to remember stuff at times. And, uh, you know, like I was saying before, it, we sometimes forget, okay, it's Palm Sunday. What were the palm branches for again? And we've heard it our whole life, and we forget. And uh, so we want to remember the most important things. Your salvation doesn't stand on the significance of the palm branches that were used on Palm Sunday, but it does stand on Christ's resurrection from the dead. 
And so how can we be sure? Well, one of the things I've done is try to give people several uh, things to remember, starting with the letter E. And the first E that we want to remember is that there was an empty tomb. Now that in itself doesn't prove the resurrection, but it's a big, big testimony. You have an empty tomb in the record of the New Testament. And uh, what does that mean? Well, you have two hostile witnesses. Hostile witnesses are the most credible witnesses. That is, witnesses that don't have anything to gain by the testimony that they're giving. And those hostile witnesses are the Jews, the Jewish leadership, and the Romans. Now, if Christ was in the tomb, if the women went to the wrong tomb, which has been suggested, um, the Jews and the Romans could have easily produced the body of Jesus. But neither of them could. Neither of them produced the body. If they produced the body of Jesus, Christianity ends. It doesn't spread. It was just a saying a, a fairy tale, this Jesus of Nazareth did a lot of things. He kept talking about how he was going to be raised from the dead, but clearly he wasn't, so he was lying, or he thought he was going to, and he was crazy. Um, but that's not what happened. They couldn't produce the body because the body isn't there. Now again, that in itself doesn't prove the resurrection, but it is a, an enormous and powerful testimony. And it's one that we have to reckon with. Uh, you know, most secular uh, uh, legitimate historians, I'm not, not people like uh, Reza Aslan on CNN in his series Believer, which I don't recommend, um, you know, pop commentators who uh, are all over the map, but most secular historians or non-believing historians, even Jewish historians, do not dispute the fact that Jesus of Nazareth lived. There's just way too much testimony from extra-biblical writers people who were credible, like Josephus, you know, the greatest Jewish historian of the first century, and uh, even worked for the Romans, and uh, you know, other people, Pliny the Younger, who wrote about uh, this Jesus of Nazareth who lived. So there's, the testimony is overwhelming that he lived. And then we have the record of the New Testament, which is uh, more in existence than any other book from antiquity, in its number of manuscripts, and its consistency from one century to the next in the, in the transmission of those manuscripts. And they testify of the things that Jesus said, and he said that he was going to be raised from the dead, and you have an empty tomb, which neither the Jews nor the Romans, who had everything to gain by producing the body, uh, produced the body. They couldn't do it. They had the, the means of producing the body, they had the motive for producing the body. They had the opportunity, but they did not. And this is something that we have to remember, the empty tomb. How, do I, how can I be sure that God's promises are true, that the Bible, that God is for me? How can I be sure that, that I can trust the New Testament? Well, there was an empty tomb. That's where we start. Secondly, there were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. 
And who were the eyewitnesses to the resurrection? The disciples? Who, who were the first people that, that saw the risen Christ? Women. You know, Christian, Christianity has done more, it's been said, for women than any other religion. It's true. Um, it, I'm always amazed, baffled, when people talk about Christianity as being demeaning toward women. It's like, how, did, how do you get that, reading the Bible? I just don't get that. Um, you know, uh, the Son of God uh, it, it first takes residence in the womb of a woman. And, uh, and then women are the first that see the risen Christ, but then also the disciples. But who else? Who else does Paul say? Yeah, Paul says that there's more than 500 who saw him. Now, where do we find that? 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is that great chapter that talks all about the resurrection of Christ, the whole chapter. And so that's a chapter you want to be familiar with as a Christian. You know, again, there there are... the whole Bible is important. The whole Bible is the Word of God. But not all parts of the Bible are equally important. There are some chapters that are more important than others. And so, yeah, the genealogies in, in Genesis are important. They're not as important as Genesis 15, where God makes his covenant with Abraham. Because you miss that, then you really un- don't misunderstand the whole plot of, of the Bible. Um, if you miss the genealogies, you know, it's not going to make you misunderstand the whole plot of the Bible, but the genealogies are still important. You get what I'm saying. 1 Corinthians 15 is very, very important. Now, most Christians are familiar with a different chapter in 1 Corinthians. Which one? What's 1 Corinthians 13? The love chapter, right? And uh, you go to uh, weddings. I was at a wedding one time, total pagan wedding. Pagan wedding, and they read 1 Corinthians 13. You know what? 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't even compare, doesn't even come close in its importance to 1 Corinthians 15. I don't want to say forget 1 Corinthians 13, but I, well, I do want to say that because you should know 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 13 is not going to help you when you're depressed. You know what it's going to do? It's going to drive you inward and say, but I don't love like that. I'm a wretch. And it's going to be law to you. 1 Corinthians 15 is going to make you say, well, Paul believed this happened. 1 Corinthians 15 preaches good news to you. 1 Corinthians 13 tells you how to live. 1 Corinthians 15 is the most important chapter in 1 Corinthians and one of the most important chapters in all of Holy Scripture. Why would the Apostle Paul who was Saul of Tarsus, do what he did. Leave a good career, a good reputation. He has everything. And opt for 30 years of hardship culminating in his death if he didn't see the risen Christ. This is why I'm here today at church. I'm not here because of 1 Corinthians 13. Not because... You know, I just, this is how I want to live with loving people. You can find that in other religions, which is why 1 Corinthians 13 often gets quoted at pagan weddings. I got nothing against 1 Corinthians 13. I think it's great and it's inspired by the Word of God, but you get my point. It's been overused when we should know this one. 
And there, Paul says lots of things about Christ being raised from the dead, the certainty of Christ's resurrection to our resurrection, Christ's return when we'll be raised from the dead. And he also says in the first few verses, he talks about how Christ appeared to the disciples and then to more than 500 brethren, most of whom are still alive, he says. In other words, you can go check this out for yourself. So if the resurrection is a legend... Why would Paul do that? Why would Paul say, you can go talk to these people? You know, a legend, the way you get a legend started is you try to go as far away from the place where you're saying that the the, uh, legends began. And you try to say, long ago, you know, in a galaxy far, far away, a great adventure took place. Because you can't verify it, right? You can't verify it. And uh, you just think, well, yeah, you know, the leprechauns live in Ireland. And uh, my dad used to tell me trolls were real when, when I was little, and he convinced me, you know, that they lived long ago, and you just don't see them anymore. And, uh, you know, you can make up legends and stories, but how is it that the apostles begin preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Where? Where did they go and first start preaching the resurrection of Christ? Rome? Athens, Jerusalem. Where was Jesus crucified? Jerusalem. Where was he first seen, risen from the dead? These aren't trick questions. Jerusalem. Yeah, Jerusalem. These are, this is the most important stuff of your Christian faith, guys. This is the most important stuff. It all comes down to this. You putting on your Sunday clothes all comes down to this. It all comes down to this. Christ was crucified and raised in Jerusalem, and then the apostles began preaching the resurrection, not far away in Jerusalem. How many centuries after? How many years after? How long was it after? Yeah, 40 days. Pentecost. Then 40, and, where, and where was Peter? This brings us to the next one. The the uh, enduring transformation of the apostles. This is huge. And the way I remember it is ETA. We all know ETA, right? Estimated time of arrival. In our, in our house, we always ask, what's the ETE? Estimated time of eating. And uh, ETA, enduring transformation of the apostles. So where was Peter? Now remember this. It all comes down to this. Where was Peter when uh, Jesus had been... Well, first of all, what did Peter do when Jesus was arrested? He denied him three times. And then where, where was he and the rest of the disciples immediately after Christ's death? Hiding. They're fearful. They're terrified. Of whom? The hostile witnesses. They're really afraid of these guys. Because these guys uh, would, wanted them dead and wanted the, the Christianity to stop, and they have the power to turn them into these guys, because these guys hold uh, the power to exercise capital punishment, which they'd taken away from the, the country that they occupied, as they did everywhere they went. So they're hiding. They're afraid. After the resurrection, they're transformed. And so Peter, the same guy who denied Christ, 
trying to save his own skin, and then hiding uh, from the Jews and the Romans, stands up at the Feast of Pentecost, okay, one of those annual feasts where the whole city is buzzing and filled with activity, like it was at Passover, you know, 40 days earlier. And he proclaims Christ in Acts chapter 2. Filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit had given them courage, boldness. That word boldness is actually a, a very important word used throughout Acts and the New Testament. Filled with bold, the Holy Spirit gives you boldness. Now, this same Peter, who's got everything to lose and nothing to gain, uh, begins proclaiming Jesus of Nazareth as being raised from the dead. Now, we'll say, okay, the tomb was empty. So what do most people tend to believe? They, maybe the disciples stole the body, because that's exactly what the Jews began saying. Okay, let's run with that one. Let's say it happened, because you've got, you got to run with these, these doubts. What if they, they hid the body? And they, they, uh, they just said, we, you know, we've got to keep the band together. We've got to keep the, um, the, the legend alive. We've got to keep the faith in nothing, but just, you know, we're in this together. Okay, let's just run with that for a minute. Who would gain from that? They hid the body. How would they gain? These are guys that left their professions. Okay, so they're, now they're going to get a new profession. They're going to make money off of a legend, because people do that, right? Well, what kind of lives did the apostles live? They're, they're persecuted. And we know that not only from Scripture, but from extra-biblical witnesses. All of them are persecuted. They're getting thrown in jail. They, are, they, they don't have money. They, uh, they're, they, you know, they're, they're connected to these little churches that are beginning. Um, but let's just say, well, they're you know, trying to get a religion started. Then they all go to their deaths separately. And nobody recants. Nobody denies these things. And then you have the Apostle Paul, who's Saul of Tarsus, who leaves everything to become an apostle and suffers for 30 years. Multiple beatings, uh, difficulties, shipwreck. Who goes through that, something like that for something that they know is not true? It takes more faith to believe in that than it does to just believe in what uh, the, the scriptures have purported. They have a transformation that endures to the end, to their martyrdoms. And then you have John, you know, who outlives them all, and uh, he's exiled to the, to the island of Patmos. And I mean, why, what has he got to gain at that point? Nothing. It's, it's Christianity, in many ways, is a religion much like the earthly ministry of our Lord. Uh, difficulty, hardship, a cross, and yet their, 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 trans, their transformation endures to the end. Why? Because they saw a risen Christ. They saw a risen Christ. There was a hand. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's precisely right. That's precisely right. It's silly. 
you know, and they, and they could have ended Christianity right then and there. And remember, the Roman, both the Romans, because this is embarrassing for the Romans, that the body's missing. I mean, they, if, you, if you look at how, remember in, in, uh, in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas are at Philippi and there's the earthquake and the, um, the jail cells open and the Roman guard is about to commit suicide because he's been dishonored and he knows what that means. He's going to be killed anyway. And uh, they are very methodical and careful, not only in their jurisprudence, their legal system, their, uh, judicial, their whole judicial system, but also in investigations, they're a very sophisticated society. And they have every, every motive and, and means to go and search out where the body would have been. And, um, yeah, all these guys are tortured and uh, killed. And there's no evidence of any of them saying, um, oh, yeah, well, we all got together and hid the body. And, you know. and then not only that, but then if that's the case, then you would have the discrepancies. If they all got together and said, we're going to invent a religion, then all the discrepancies amongst the Gospels would be cleaned up. You see, we, we, we often get all worried and as Christians. Oh, well, you know, it says here that two angels were at the tomb when the women went. Over here it says one angel. And no, 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 you like those discrepancies. Those discrepancies show the validity and the truthfulness of this message. When you go and you, and they, you investigate a crime and you're in, in investigating all the witnesses, uh, you're going to have certain discrepancies that not, don't necessarily contradict each other. It's just what they saw, the person from that perspective. And I've always used this. You know, if there's, let's say there's a bank robbery and they're interviewing the people who were there in the bank and then the people who were outside and one guy says, um, yeah, one guy came in and he ran out and there were two guys in the car waiting. And another guy says, yeah, there's one guy in the car. Well, the guy who says one guy in the car isn't, doesn't contradict the guy that was two guys in the car. He only saw one. It doesn't mean that there was one and only one. It just means that he only saw one. And so there's, and those kinds of discrepancies actually give credibility to the witnesses. Any lawyer will tell you this. They're not contradictions. If it was all cleaned up and neat, it would, it would look, look much more like some cult member sat down one day and made up a story once upon a time. Well, Joseph Smith didn't live a persecuted life, did he? When you read, when you read the story of Joseph Smith, a lot of us don't, aren't familiar with Joseph Smith. How many of you know Joseph Smith ran for president of the United States? How many of you know that Joseph Smith had his own army and actually marched on places? And, of course, we all know that Joseph Smith had an enormous harem of wives. I mean, those, that's the evidence that you have of someone like Joseph Smith. Totally different life than someone like the Apostle Paul. So if we're going to look, compare what kind of uh, transformation that endured, I really don't see any transformation of someone like Joseph Smith. I see a cult leader who benefited from uh, you know, people that he was able to do. Yeah. Or like Jim Jones. Yeah, they all went to their death, right? Exactly. All together drinking Kool-Aid. One at a time. All together. These guys did not do it all together. They each went different parts of the world, and they're, they're killed in Jerusalem, in India, in Africa, in Europe, um, each going, planting churches, 
and enduring to the end. Totally different scenario than, uh, than a cult. The Christian faith is valid. It's worth believing and uh, worth enduring for. A cult is not. But these are three E's that are helpful to remember. And there's other ones too. We could talk about the explanation of Old Testament prophecy. And you think about passages that talk about the turning from death to life. That that's really what the whole Old Testament is about. That's one that never gets mentioned, by the way, um, by the critics. That'll, that'll come out this week on the networks. You'll see them. Reza Aslan and all the other uh, leading lights in the world um, will come out once again. People like um, um, John Dominic Croisson, he'll come out and say, uh, he's a, he used to teach at Notre Dame. Um, I don't know where he teaches now, but um, no, I think Duke. I forget. He's one, somewhere in the Ivy League, I believe. And uh, you know, he's one of the noted talking heads that comes out every Easter week and will say, the gospel is a powerful story that transforms us into better people. But that doesn't mean it's true. It's just a beautiful story. And I heard him say, if you, put, if you put a video camera in the tomb of Jesus, what would you find? Nothing. Nothing happened. Which again, it doesn't, <laughs> how do you get this? And he'll, say, and he'll say, well, there's plausible things. You know, maybe Jesus swooned his death. Which, I mean, that's just, you've got to be kidding me. He gets tortured, uh, flogged, scourged, crucified, by the Romans, dehydrated, and they stab him, and they put him in a tomb, and he faked it all, and now he comes back from the cool air in the tomb and pushes the, I mean, I, I, you got to give me better than that if I'm going to um, not believe in Christianity. That one actually, I think, helps our case, you know. Um, but you have people like that will come out again and again saying that uh, the resurrection didn't happen. They'll never engage the fact that the, the Bible itself in the Old Testament w- uh, speaks of someone who would lead us to the tree of life. That death, the curse, gets overturned. That you have prophecies like Daniel chapter 12 speak of the resurrection from the dead. That uh, Psalm 16 speak of the Messiah, his body not being given over to corruption. You have all of the, this testimony that's the whole thrust of redemptive history leading up to a Messiah who would give himself for our sins and lead us to life through his resurrection. And so it, it brings into full light what had been given in part in the Old Testament. And then another E would be the, so that'd be the, that would be the explanation of Old Testament prophecy. A fifth E would be um, the... Uh, yeah, extra biblical writings, you know, writings that people like Josephus, you know, credible Jewish historian, works for the Romans and says, uh, yeah, there's people saying that this Jesus of Nazareth has been raised from the dead, and they're unwilling to recant that. They're even going to their deaths saying it. And uh, he doesn't say he believes in it, but he recognizes that people are, are saying these things, that this has become a thing in the first century. And so what we have to do as Christians is we have to reckon with this. Is Christianity true? Is it true? Not is it helpful. That'll lead you into depression. But is it true? Is it true? 
And it all stands on what ultimately what uh, uh, has been given us in the record of Scripture. And so I just want to read here in conclusion what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Explanation of Old Testament prophecy. And that He appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, which is a metaphor for death. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Because remember, he was... He, was, uh, he came later. For I am least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Notice the difference between Paul and and the world. The world says, hey, if you've got a faith, that's helpful. As long as it helps you. Makes you a better person. Gives you some hope. Gets you through the day. Paul says, no, your faith is futile if Christ has not been raised from the dead. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. So the two Adams. Okay, so again, the whole thrust of redemptive history speaks of Christ's resurrection. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. That is, all who are in Christ. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, so he's glorified. Then at his coming, his return, those who belong to Christ... Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. See, this is the gospel. Death it looms over us. It, you know, it makes us sad. and you know, We don't want to die. We don't like thinking about death. It's an enemy. But it too will be destroyed on the last day at glorification when the fullness of salvation is applied to you because Christ has been raised from the dead. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. He's speaking of the glorified earth when Christ takes up his place as the leader of the new humanity. 
Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? Here's the enduring transformation. Here's the difference between him and Joseph Smith. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. Not, I, don't, I, I have harems. I have houses. I have a whole kingdom united around me. What do I gain, verse 32, if, I, if humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If, if, the, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead and there's no resurrection to look forward to, man, have at it. I'm not going to be a Christian. And I'm certainly not going to live like a nice guy. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to step on you and take whatever I can, because that's the kind of person I am. I'm going to take as much as I can and enjoy as much as I can of this life, because then you die and that's it. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, then that changes everything. That's what Paul is saying here. It all hangs on this. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And he uses that analogy of uh, you know, the seed and, and the, the tree. And then he goes in later, I won't read the rest, but he goes in saying how this is ultimately what God had designed from the beginning, that there would be glorified life. That was the goal that was held out for Adam. And Adam didn't achieve it, but Christ has. And that's what his resurrection means. His resurrection is the entrance into the glory that God designed from the beginning and was symbolized in the tree of life. And that's what we have waiting for us. So it's anchored in the past. And we have the hope in the present because it's promised in the future. And we can be sure that he will give us that if, in fact, he was seen by many eyewitnesses and raised from the dead. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ's resurrection and the testimony of the apostles. And help us, we pray, Father, to know what we believe and why and to be able to go back to what your word says and what was seen and what was accounted for by those who walked with Christ and saw him. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith and that we would take delight and joy in the facts that have been revealed by you and preserved in your providence. And we thank you, Father, for the consistency and the testimony of your wonderful word. We pray, Father, that it would fill our hearts with hope and that we too would endure this life bearing our cross, looking for the return of the Lord Jesus who has been raised from the dead and will raise our bodies from the dead as well. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.